It's really, really good to be together with all of you today, especially uh, if you're a guest. We're truly honored uh, by your presence. I want you to know that we hope that you'll make yourself right at home. Know that we as a church community, we're here to serve you in the place that you are at uh, spiritually and uh, otherwise. Uh, and in case you're wondering what in the world this room is decorated like this for, uh, we're hosting the Belgrade Prom in here tonight, like right after we're done. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I remember him talking about that. That's why, uh, you know, it looks like the enchanted forest. Something like that. It looks like Harry Potter right there, something uh, like that. Uh, And really, uh, we are incredibly honored to have students and parents in here uh, this weekend for that event. Uh, It's uh, why we built this building, really, Uh, part of why we built this building. I've heard uh, over the last week about lots and lots of you have decided to use this new series that we're in uh, as a prime inviting opportunity for people in your life and in your world. And to you, I say, way to go. I'd extend the challenge to the rest of us to think about people in our lives who would benefit from this new message series as a way to help you further and deepen your ongoing conversation with them about Jesus Christ. Be thinking, be praying, be strategic about who you could bring in the next few weeks uh, for whom this series might be incredibly strategic. Uh, uh, Just think that way, pray that way, and then uh, act accordingly, if you would. Some of you are wondering, well, what in the world are you talking about? What is this new series? Well, it's a series we're calling Sticky Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. I introduced a series uh, last weekend, and you can pick up the podcast or the vodcast uh, off iTunes if you're so inclined, if you missed that one, kind of a kickoff. And it's a series in which we're asking and attempting to answer some of the stickiest questions that ever get asked of we who follow Jesus Christ. The questions we're wading into, as a matter of fact, they're so sticky that a whole bunch of we who follow Jesus, we actually hope and pray that no one will ever ask these questions of us because we frankly don't know how in the world we'd answer them. Because we want to be people who honor God and we want to be people who satisfy questioners seeking curiosity, but lots of times we don't have the answer at the tip of our tongue for these questions. But... Like we talked about last week in 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we're to always be ready to explain the hope that Jesus Christ has given us. We need to have an answer. We need to have an answer. And so today we're going to ask and attempt to answer one of the most foundational, fundamental questions that ever gets asked of us. Is there a God? Is there a God? Next week, uh, Chris Townley, our student pastor, one of Journey's other teaching pastors, will be tackling one of the other real foundational questions to the whole of the Christian faith, and it's, is the Bible reliable? Today, though, we're asking the question, is there a God? How do we know that there is a God, especially since we can't see him, hear him, touch him, and so on. A guy named Mark Middleberg, he wrote some material that was real crux to my study and my prep for this message, the whole series, really. So is there a God? Is there a God? Is he real? Can we be sure that God exists? After all, uh, he's not tangible. You can't put him on a scale and weigh him. You can't measure how tall he is, though I imagine that he's very tall. Uh, You certainly can't touch him or see him. He's not even detectable by radar or sonar. His presence just simply doesn't register with any of our five senses. And yet many, many millions and millions and millions of people believe in him. How? Why? And those are profoundly challenging questions, aren't they? 
And they're very central and they're very foundational to our belief as followers of Jesus Christ. And just as importantly for so many seeking people, this particular question is the starting place for their spiritual search. Which means that it's real, real important that we be able to answer in a way that's truthful, candid, represents God well, and in a way that honors the person and the people who are asking the question. And when it comes to the question, is there a God? Whenever I'm talking to people who ask that question, I most often start with a conversation around all the other important things in our lives that we believe in without seeing, hearing, or touching. You know what those things are, don't you? One of them is love, right? Now, love is this incredibly profound reality, isn't it? Most all of us believe in love. A whole lot of love is going to be expressed in this room in just a little bit, high school student. <laughs> but love is not anywhere near a material thing, is it? Love is not something that we can see, hear, or touch directly. You can't prove Love. You cannot show someone the love that you have for your spouse or for your family in tangible ways. Yes, you can show people evidence of your love for your spouse or for your family or for anyone, but you cannot show them the love itself. Here, let me show you the love. you, You can't do that because the love is invisible. You can only detect the love itself through the effects of the love. Another very important thing that we believe in, which is only detectable through its effects, is air, right? None of us can see air, can we? Unless you're on Billings Industrial East End, and then you can see the air mixed with all those nasty pollutants. Gross. Don't live there. But we all, just kidding, but we all breathe air, don't we? We all breathe air. We all experience air. We all move through the air, right? Another very, very important thing that we all believe in without seeing is gravity, right? We don't see gravity, but we live constantly with its effects, and we don't dare try to violate the law of gravity, do we? Now, uh, I'm an aviation fanatic. I love airplanes. I love flight. By the way, I just turned 37 a couple of weeks ago, and so that means I now have three years to achieve the goal I set a long, long time ago of getting my pilot's license and instrument rating by the time I'm 40, and the clock is tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. I love aviation, all things aviation. And anytime I ever get in an airplane, it's just the same when you get in an airplane, you're believing with your very life in four very important forces that you, not, that you cannot see to get you safely to your intended destination, those four forces that are required for flight, which are, by the way, completely invisible, are lift, drag, thrust, and gravity. Lift, drag, thrust, and gravity. And whenever you insert that flat metal tip into the buckle and tighten by pulling on the belt, I could have been a flight attendant, huh? Maybe I'd be a better flight attendant than preacher. But whenever you do that, you're choosing to believe in those four things that you cannot see, hear, or touch. And you put your life, you stake your life on them. And here's why that's where I always start the conversation when people ask about the existence of God. Because the very fundamental Christian understanding of God is that he is not a material thing. Just like love, air, gravity, the forces required for flight, 
They are not material things either. Look with me at John 4.24. Take your Bibles and turn there if you would. If you have a text, you can follow along on the screen. As you're turning there, I want to offer this. Chris Townley, our student pastor, one of our other teaching pastors, he's going to wade into this next weekend for sure. But just in the interest of full disclosure, for the purposes of this series, we are making the assumption that the Bible is a credible source of information about God and about matters of faith in him. Now, while certainly some of the things I'm going to talk about today are extra biblical, sort of outside of the scope of the sacred text, we're assuming for the purposes of this series that the Bible is credible. Next weekend, Townley's going to tell us why and how the Bible is credible. John 4, 24, are you there? Here's what the Bible says. We went there for four words. Here it is. For God is spirit. For God is spirit. So unlike our friends, our pets, our children, our iPhones, our bikes, our cars, or uh, our balloon trees from the enchanted forest, all of which we can see, hear, touch, things we can experience with our five senses because they're physical and material things, unlike all of those things that we can experience with our five senses, God is a spiritual being. For God is spirit. He's spirit. He's a spiritual reality. And spiritual beings and spiritual realities are not things that can be seen with physical eyes, heard with physical ears, touched with physical hands. God, see, is a different kind of being than we are accustomed to relating to, which means that we cannot experience him in the same way that we experience just about anything else that we ever interact with. And that's because we experience God in other ways, don't we? If you've Follow Jesus for any length of time at all, then you've sensed his presence, haven't you? You've experienced and known his work uh, in your life. When I was 15 years old, I was sitting in a church service on a Wednesday night. I was super spiritual. If you're super spiritual, you go to church on Wednesday night, don't you? And as I sat in that church auditorium, that church sanctuary, I felt God tugging on my heart in a way that I had not felt before. Yes, I absolutely was a Christian at that point. I had asked Jesus into my heart to be my savior when I was six years old in my Sunday school class with my Sunday school teacher, a gal named Lila Prentice, who to this day is still alive and we're friends on Facebook now, which is real cool because she's like, I think in her 80s and she's on Facebook. She keeps up with Journey. She lives in Northern California and she keeps up with us and she sort of cheers us on from afar knowing that she has significant stake in my spiritual upbringings fantastic. And sitting in that church sanctuary my sophomore year of high school, as I sensed the Holy Spirit of God tugging on my heart, something was different than it had ever been before. I sensed God nudging me not just to be a Christian, like enough of just being a Christian, but I sensed God's Holy Spirit nudging me to actually get after what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And what happened in my life following that evening's worship experience squares with everything that the Apostle Paul wrote in the letter to the Christians in Rome a couple of thousand years before that, Romans 8, 15, and 16. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father Abba is another way to say daddy, really. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And countless hundreds and even thousands of times since that day, I've sensed in very, very difficult to explain internal ways, God nudging me to say certain things to certain people 
God nudging me to send a note to somebody, to make a call, to pray a certain prayer for a particular person at a particular time, to start a brand new church called Journey in Bozeman. Even I've sensed God nudging, prompting us to expand our family through the miracle of adoption. I've experienced him in myriad ways. And here's why I share all of that with you. One of the ways that we know that God is real, one of the ways we know that God is active in our world is because we know that he's real and active right here in our lives. That means that when people are asking about the existence of God, that is a real and very valid part of our answer to them. We know that God exists because he's our friend. We know that he exists because he's forgiven us of our sins, because he's turned our lives around, because he speaks to us, he challenges us, he guides us, he corrects us when we need it. Always, always, always acting out of his incredible love for us. That compelled him, that love compelled him to send his son Jesus to die on the cross, to take our sin upon himself so that we might know him as our savior. All things that Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 12 speak of. I'd invite you to check that out sometime this week. And so we sort of encapsulate all that by saying our testimony alone can have a very powerful influence on others, especially people who know us well enough to know what we used to be like and what has changed in us since we came to faith in Christ. Sure, they might not be able to see God, but they can absolutely see everything that he's done in us. And here's what's true. Experience is very, very hard to argue with. The Apostle Paul, many other biblical writers, they appealed to personal experience. One day, the Apostle Paul, he was talking with some very skeptical listeners, and he said, from Acts 26, starting in verse 12, One day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and my witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. And then fast forward in that same passage, a man, a very important man named Agrippa was there that day, verses 28 to 29, and Agrippa interrupted him, the Bible says. And here's the question that he asked. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Just like that. Like, I'm going to hear your experience, and then I'm going to turn on a dime and become a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul, he's a winsome, he's a winsome follower of Jesus Christ, and he's quick on his feet. And here's how he replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. That you might become like me. And I'm praying for that. Now, with some people, Telling them of your personal experience with God can and will be a powerful tool, but get this. For others, they will not be convinced by your testimony in any way. They might arrive at the conclusion that, yeah, you're a genuine person, but they might also at the same time conclude that you're interpreting coincidences in your life for supernatural, you're interpreting them, coincidences, as supernatural interactions. And they'll actually doubt you Some may even question your sincerity at that point. So in the time that we have remaining, I want to look together at what many consider to be four of the very best answers for the evidence of God's existence that we can share with people who ask us four answers. The first one is this, the existence of the universe. 
the existence of the universe. Now, since the beginning of time, many people have supposed that the universe just always was, that it just always existed. Various Eastern and Western figures believe that the universe just was eternal, that it never, ever had a beginning. It was a very commonly held view among scientists and philosophers until the 20th century, really. However, in the past 30 plus years, there's been explosive growth in our understanding of many areas of science, especially this area called cosmology, the study of origins, structures, and development of the physical universe. Now, Einstein's theory of relativity, which I am not hardly smart enough to understand in its entirety, but it is, as I understand, nearly universally accepted. And his theory of relativity has some staggering implications. One is that the universe, time, space, matter, all physical energy, had a starting point in history. That means, see, since it had a starting point in history, that it, the universe, is not eternal, as earlier thinkers postulated. Now check this out. Through Einstein's equations, we can actually, well, smart people can actually trace the origin of the universe back to what's called the singularity event when it, the universe, popped, if you will, into being what has become known as the Big Bang, right? But here's the deal. Many scientists, including Einstein himself, they didn't like that result. Perhaps because it sounded strangely akin to the biblical concept of creation. And so they set out to try to find an error inside of Einstein's equations that would allow for the universe to be understood as being eternal after all. But guess what? They couldn't find an error. It was watertight. And even the modern-day Hubble Space Telescope has provided backup proof of Einstein's theory. Hubble, for the first time, allowed astronomers to see that the universe is actually constantly and forever expanding. And the farther away the galaxy is, the faster it's moving, the faster it's expanding. That has led to the conclusion that the universe must have had some beginning point from which it began that expansion process. That means if the universe had a starting point in history, then obviously it began to exist at a point in time. But if it began to exist, then it must have had a cause for its existence. Things do not just begin to exist without a cause. Science always operates on the principle that all events need, they require a cause. But if the universe needs a cause for its coming into being, then the cause must be beyond or outside of the universe. Remember, the universe by definition is time, space, matter, physical energy. That means the cause for the universe must be something beyond time, beyond space, beyond matter, beyond all physical energy. Very simply put, the cause must be something remarkably similar to what we commonly refer to as God. And you can summarize this existence of the universe answer this way, very simply, in some bullet points. Whatever begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist at a point in time. Therefore, the universe must have a cause for its existence. The attributes of the cause of the universe, timeless, existing outside of space, etc., are the attributes of God, are they not? Therefore, the cause of the universe must be God. And that's just what Christians have believed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And despite what many people say and what many people have heard, science is not at odds with the existence of God. 
with belief in God. Quite often to the contrary, science actually provides rather compelling evidence for God's existence. Answer number one, let's talk about answer number two. The just so, this just so universe uh, that we live in. And this, this one should be easier for us to get than many people who live in other parts of the world and country. I don't know about you, but do you ever look around this valley? Do you ever just sort of stand out in your front yard or your backyard or wherever? And do you ever just stand in awe of everything that you see around you? Do you ever do that? I do it all the time. I am constantly standing in amazement of just how beautiful and complex this world that we live in is. The overwhelming variety of plant life, the abundant supply of all different kinds of wildlife, the striking sunsets, the brilliant moon in the sky, it all really just takes you aback, doesn't it? Consider all that we see around us in light of these words from the psalmist, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Amen to that. That is so true. And here's what makes this even more amazing. All of this that we stand out and look at in awe, it did not just spring into existence unaided. Science is teaching us more and more and more that these building blocks of our world, the laws and the physical constants that govern all matter in the universe, they appear to be precisely and perfectly balanced, finely tuned for life to occur and for life to flourish. Take gravity, for instance. Physicists have calculated that the strength of gravity must fall into a very narrow, very specific range, or there would be no conscious life possible on the planet. If the force of gravity were to somehow be changed by even the tiniest fraction relative to the other forces of nature, then life ceases to exist anywhere in the universe. And what's even more amazing is that all of those perfectly fine-tuned parameters and constants, they're independent of each other. In other words, they could all be just right for life except one, which is off, if it's off to the tiniest fraction that alone would preclude any of us from being here today, which really makes it all the more unlikely that this just came to be by chance. And so this incredible confluence of the many, many, many examples of fine, fine, fine tuning in the universe, each one independently set to the precise measures necessary to support life, points powerfully to the existence of an incredibly intelligent designer who made made this universe just. So look at Isaiah 40, 25, 26 to 28. To whom will you compare me, the Lord asked. Who is my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up to the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power, his incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Our just so universe points to the existence of God. Answer number three, let's talk for a few moments about our morally good universe. This morally good universe. 
Some of you might know that I'm a real news junkie. I'm an aviation junkie. I'm a news junkie. The homepage on my web browser is this giant news blog. And I read lots of stuff on there just about every day. But honestly, especially at the end of many, many, many days, I just simply cannot take the hearing or seeing of any more bad news. I just can't take it anymore. And here's what I've noticed about most news reports. They most often overlook the heaps and heaps and heaps of really good things going on all around us all the time, don't they? Goodness abounds. There are countless examples of goodness and virtue in our world, but I guess that stuff doesn't sell as well as bad news sells, does it? And here's a question related to the question we're asking and trying to answer today. Is there a God? On what basis is something considered good or evil? On what basis is something considered right or wrong? And then a follow-up question, where did that basis for good or evil, right or wrong, come from? Did goodness just arise up out of the results of the Big Bang? Uh Uh-uh. Moral values cannot come from a physical explosion. So where in the world did they come from? And honestly, one of the big problems that atheists have to sincerely wrestle with is what's often referred to as the problem of good. Whoever thought we'd think of goodness as a problem? But they have to honestly wrestle with the problem of good. For people who don't believe in God, good becomes a problem because there just is not a way to explain or justify objective moral values. You cannot just explain them away. Because you see, morals and values, they're not just the creations of human beings. We didn't just make this stuff up. They're objective. They are not relative, which means that they are above us and outside of us and our particular laws and our particular thinking, our particular practice. If, for example, there were a culture in which murder and rape and bigotry and racism were a regular part of their culture and practice, we would instinctively react to that, wouldn't we? It's hardwired into us. And if and when our objections were met with the argument, it's just how we do things in our culture. It's just tradition or it's just custom or it's just practice. We would patently reject their answer, wouldn't we? Because you see, murder and rape and bigotry and racism, they're just flat wrong. Just flat wrong. They are objectively wrong. But where does that knowledge, where does that intrinsic sense of right and wrong come from. If we didn't invent it, if it transcends the realms of culture and politics and practice and so, if it's something that we can't get away from, then what in the world is its source? Might it just be that a moral, capital M, lawgiver, capital L, actually knit those moral standards along with the ability to understand and operate by them into the very fabric of what it means to be human. Might he have done that? And really, that's the conclusion that squares with logic. It's the conclusion that squares with experience, isn't it? It explains why the Nazis were boldly told that exterminating Jews was a wrong thing to do. It's why we also knew that Saddam Hussein was doing evil when he oppressed his own people, when he murdered members of his own family, when he tortured and killed those he considered political threats, ordered the extermination of tens of thousands of Kurds. It's actually what's in view in Libya right now. Gaddafi is 
suppressing a democratic uprising in his country by punishing, by death, those responsible for this freedom uprising. That is wrong, objectively wrong. And all of the markers that tell us that those things are wrong, see, they flow from God's very nature. They flow right out of God himself, this supreme and transcendent and divine being, the creator of the universe, everything in it. They're not just invented by we human beings. Sure, they're discovered by we humans, but they're grounded in the very nature of this good, loving, personal God who created us in his very image, set a sense of right and wrong inside of us and told us to, in Ephesians 5, 1, imitate God. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. That is powerful evidence for God. And we can synthesize it very, very simply. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. But we know that objective moral values do exist, therefore, God does exist. Answer number four, I want to finish with this one, is called Pascal's Wager. Some of you have probably heard about this. Suppose a person that you're talking with about whether or not there's a God feels that all those other answers that you've just sort of deposited on the table, they're just not enough for them. They're inconclusive for them. There's another sort of different kind of answer left. It's come to be known as Pascal's Wager. And I'm choosing to include it here not because uh, it offers ironclad proof for the existence of God, but because it can very often help those who are in conversation with in their search for God in the absence of what they might consider ironclad proof. Now, as originally proposed by Blaise Pascal, he's a French mathematician, French physicist, French inventor, writer, a Catholic philosopher, the wager asks the question, where are you going to place your bet? With whom are you going to place your bet? And as the wager unfolds, if you place your bet on the existence of God, you lose nothing, do you? Even if it turns out that God does not exist. But if you place your bet against the existence of God and you're wrong and God does exist, what happens? You lose everything, don't you? You lose God, you lose eternity, you lose heaven, you lose infinite gain, and they're lost to you for all of eternity. And when you assess the two cases, what they really boil down to is if you win, you win everything. If you lose, you lose nothing. Now, suppose God doesn't exist and I believe in him. In that case, what awaits me after death isn't eternal life, but most likely really just eternal non existence, sort of darkness, blackness, uh, nothingness, right? But take the other approach. God, uh, creator, the source of all good, say he does exist. But I choose not to believe in him. He offers me his love and his life, and I outright reject it. In him are the answers to my greatest questions. In him is the fulfillment of my deepest desires. But I decide to forsake it all. In that case... I lose, or at least seriously risk, losing everything, don't I? Now, here's the thing about Pascal's wager. It can't and it should not ever be used to sort of crowbar, pry bar, coerce belief. It can, however, be a motivating incentive that challenges friends and family and so to search for God. 
to study and seek to know whether or not there is something, capital S, or someone, capital S, who is the ultimate explanation of the universe and for life itself. And as we wrap this up, I want to say again, God is like a lot of other things. We can't see them directly, but we see a whole lot of evidence for them. And I would offer that these five answers to the question, is there a God that we've walked through today, all provide really solid reasons to believe in God. By themselves, they each point to the existence of God. And when taken together, they provide what one man has called strong confirmation of his existence. And you could sum it up, everything that we've talked about today, sort of like this. The cumulative case for God's existence is more than sufficient for an open-minded person to believe that he's really there. The cumulative case for God's existence is more than sufficient for an open-minded person to believe that he's really there. And get this, folks. God is always a gentleman. He never forces his reality on anyone. But for people who are asking, he has not left answers wanting. Look at Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Why don't you take your things, and I just invite you to set them aside and move into a posture of prayer and listening to God, if you would. And I just invite you to think on these things. Ruminate on these things with God. For we who follow Jesus Christ, these answers toward the existence of God that we've sorted through today, they're not meant to be Bible bullets that you load up in your Bible pistol and fire out at people. Not at all. These are meant really as conversation starters. Part of a longer, more serious, ongoing conversation with people who God steers into your life. People whom God is saying, here, here's a seeker. Have a conversation with them. And when you have that conversation, like we talked about last weekend, Peter says, be ready. Be ready. And so we who follow Jesus Christ, I just invite you to take these answers. Think on them. Hold them up before God. Ask him to refine them in your heart and your experience. And then say, God, would you give me opportunity to leverage these, please? Would you give me a chance to use the stuff that you're teaching me and the tools that you're giving me for your purposes, for your glory, for the sake of the bringing of your kingdom? 
that you might actually be a part of bringing the kingdom to planet earth through answering people's seeking spiritual questions. And what a hoot that will be. As you're more equipped and their questions get answered. And in one of those conversations, those people who you're having conversation with, you know what? They just might step across the line of faith in Jesus. They just might say, I get it. I believe. You might just have the privilege of kneeling beside them and inviting them to pray, to receive Christ, to give their hearts and lives to him, to make him their boss. I'm telling you the truth, folks. There is nothing greater than that. There is nothing greater than that. And maybe you're a person who's here today and you'd honestly admit that I don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe you for a long time now, you've been skeptical of whether or not there even is a God. You've been going through life alone, experienced the shakiness and challenges of that kind of existence. What if this is it? What if this is your day to believe in the existence of God and actually step into your own personal relationship with Him? What if this is your day? Why wouldn't it be? And if that's you, you start that transaction by confessing to God, God, I get it. I believe in you. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die. I believe that I require, because of my sin, I require a savior. And I require a savior because everything in my life has been going away from you. And so I ask you to please forgive me, a sinner, once and for all, for all my stuff, all my sins. Jesus, I want to know you more than I want anything else. Jesus, please change me. Please forgive me. And if there's those of you who would say, yeah, I believe. Today, perhaps for the very, very first time, I believe in God. I believe in the love of God. I want to turn back to God. Forgive me, God, please, for my sins. Make me brand new. I'm surrendering everything in my life to you. I'm not trusting in anyone or anything else. I'm putting it all on you, God, all in with you. I'm giving my life completely to you. If that's your prayer today, would you just real boldly lift your hands and lock eyes with me right here, right now, just say, yep, you can do that right now. You can just lift your hand up and say, yep, that's me. I believe today. Right over here, yeah. Way to go, buddy. Way to go. Yes. And yeah, back there, yes. I stand with you and I say yes with you. Way to go. God, this can get awfully heady. It can get awfully thick as faith and philosophy, cosmology and such all meets up, God. And I pray that you would very simply help our hearts and our minds sort it all out in ways that's helpful 
for you. For the people in our lives who are asking the questions, that it would be hopeful for them. God, that you would, in the right moment, that you would give us the words, that you would give us the wisdom. That God, stuff would roll off our tongues that we go, where in the world did that come from? And we can only turn and look to you and say, it's only by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for giving the gift of words and wisdom in just the right moment in a way that honors you, in a way that honors the person who's asking the questions, God. We want to know you more deeply. And we want to be a part of giving you away, giving your life, giving your truth, giving your freedom to the people in our lives who don't yet know you. Help us, please, God, do that so well.